both measurable extents and individual aspects of things. Dimensions are how we equip our world with particularity, how we give it units, microns, acres, inches, light years, smoots, how we make sense of the vast and the miniature, how we imagine volume and duration, flatness and fineness. Dimensions of flavor, of character, of consciousness. These features individuate experiences, acquaintances, and relationships, creating a life filled with unique and memorable things. In architecture, dimensions are crucial, ranging from prosaic units of scale and size to deeper and subtler considerations of a thing's qualities and surface effects. Hi, I'm Marika Trotter. I'm history and theory coordinator and faculty here at SciArc. This podcast is about contemporary architectural issues and attitudes. It's organized by theme, which means that we have the option to connect unexpected things together and maybe rethink just by juxtaposition how we approach things within architecture, but also how architecture approaches things outside of itself. In this episode, we will look at dimensions from the perspective of astrophysics and queer aesthetics, along with architectural representations. When do lines contain more information than fully modeled volumes? And what new life comes to art and design considered in light of gender dimensions? This episode is about dimensionality, about its artifice, its strangeness, its unexpected qualities. First, astrophysicist Louis Abramson considers the surprising ways dimensions coexist across vast distances of space and time. Okay, I'm super excited to talk with Louis Abramson, um, who is a postdoctoral scholar at UCLA in the Division of Astronomy and Astrophysics. We're going to be talking about dimensionality, but I know this is going to get weird in all kinds of interesting ways. So we think that we understand, at least in terms of physical space, what dimensionality means, that there is an an x-axis and a y-axis and a z-axis, and the way that we move around like a one-dimensional line or a two-dimensional sheet of paper or a three-dimensional cube, or even if you think of four dimensions as including time or duration, seems pretty straightforward at a kind of intuitive basic level. But what happens when you zoom into a line so much that it starts to act like a volume? Or what happens when you zoom out so far away from a volume that it starts to seem like a point? What does relative scale have to do with dimensionality? This is a big opening question for an astronomer. Space is a weird place to be. We think about it in four dimensions, three dimensions, and time. And normal people have access to all of those dimensions. I mean, I'm talking to you in time, but we're also sitting in a room that has obviously three dimensions to it. But one of the weirder things about astronomy is that we lose access to some of those dimensions instantaneously and gain access to other dimensions that aren't even spatial at the same time. Our native way of looking at the universe is actually very distinct from how people who are used to living in three dimensions plus time experience it. Let's talk about scale first. So everybody knows the universe is huge. The Milky Way, the galaxy that we live in, takes light 100,000 years to cross it, which is big. It has 100 billion stars in it. Um, You know, each one of those might have a planet. And the universe obviously has hundreds of billions of galaxies, and they're very, very far away. But when you look at it onto the sky, you see that all projected onto one plane. So all that three-dimensional structure, all those big numbers, all those scales get totally compressed immediately into one sheet. So you lose access to depth because 
everything, as you look farther away, as you were saying, just becomes point-like. So there's some distance at which every single object in the universe just looks like an infinitesimal point. So we, we lose access to that, and at the same time, things the universe is very old, so we have trouble over the course of a human life, so we lose access to time. So automatically, all that information that normal humans are used to experiencing in terms of four dimensions, we, we lose two of them immediately. And part of the challenge of being an astrophysicist is how do we learn about things when you're already at a disadvantage of losing two of your four dimensions. It's interesting that you're talking about the heavens kind of, to use the old word, being sort of projected flat immediately takes me back into the sense of the Greek period when people would look up at the sky as a dome and they would think about it as if it were simply a plane onto which points of light were projected or through which pricks of light appeared. It's interesting to hear that that's still the way space is at least initially perceived by very sophisticated instruments, I'm assuming. So there's no immediate way to kind of take that flat picture that we get, even with our naked eye, and then kind of pl plump it back out, if you like. So you've now opened up the great trick of astronomy. There is no way to do that, but you can use the other dimensions and dimensions that we haven't talked about yet, like, like velocity. You can use other dimensions to back out, to infer the third dimension that of distance that you've lost. So yes, all the data we get, it's just a sheet of paper projected onto a plane. But we do have access to some time. I mean, the Earth orbits the sun in a year, and you can use time to get a distance. But to get back to what you're saying, yes. So we still perceive the universe exactly as the Greeks did. We still measure things in it, like we're measuring stuff on a piece of paper. But if you have information in other domains, if you have other dimensions of information, then you can start to take that two-dimensional surface and, and unflatten it. But it takes a lot of work, and it takes, in some cases, very sophisticated measurements that you might not have the ability to make. So, yeah, most of it is still 2D. Could it not be the case that artificial intelligence could help automate some of these kinds of calculations? If there are certain things that we understand about the universe as it relates to velocity and time, it seems like some of those things would be really complicated to think through as a human brain, partially just because of the time scale that we live in, um, in our lives, um, that they might be things that could be calculable with other kinds of intelligence, say machine intelligence. Does that play a role in your work at all? Not in my work, but that's a huge area of research, yes. AI and machine learning are just making it, astronomy is sort of just hitting the epoch of big data. Um, we say we have a lot of data, and, and again, let's talk about compression of scale. 100 billion stars sounds like a lot of stars, but that's only 16 stars for every person on the planet. So the U.S. Census has much more data in it than most astronomical catalogs. That's the ultimate dimensional challenge. And machine learning kind of ties into there because we have, to, we, have to, we have to bring another dimension. So yes, we are using machine learning to tell distances why. It turns out distance is related to color and also spatial separation on the sky. So then you can train big computer algorithms, AI, to map that color space into a distance space. And this becomes tricky because not all galaxies are the same intrinsic color. So that's one way machine learning is coming into it. And, it, and, and then another way it's coming into it is that color also relates to the age of a galaxy. I think of the color thing as like the difference between a candle and, and um, daylight, right? So a candle is redder than daylight, and a candle is a lower wattage by far than daylight is. It's something that you learn in lighting design class in architecture school. And so it makes total sense to me that something farther away would be redder, but it's also true that something older would be redder too, right? It might, might be hard to tell the difference between age and distance. Yes. So 
We use color temperature as well, the same color temperature you guys use. And the reason why it's measured in Kelvin is because it has to do with the temperature of the emitter. And it turns out that stars of different lifetimes have different color temperatures. Stars that live the longest have the lowest color temperature. They're the reddest. Are those like the equivalent of a red dwarf? Yep. No red dwarf has ever died in the universe since the beginning. Yeah, some of them have lifetimes approaching a trillion years. So they stick around forever. So every red dwarf that a galaxy has made is still in it. But then also, we're seeing things that are really, really old, right? So are you ever seeing the after effect of a galaxy or a star that's not really there anymore? And what can you learn from that? So now we have this interesting duality between having a sense of age from color, but not having any access to time. In most human existences, time and age are the same. You age at one year per year. But galaxies, we know that they, if we see them at a certain time in the universe, we know that they can be no older than 7 billion years. But we can't actually watch them change. We just know that this is what a galaxy was that was no older than 7 billion years. I study how galaxies grow because galaxies are like people. They're all different, but there are meaningful classes of them when we look into space in terms of color and shape and all those dimensions. And we want to know why things got that way. Galaxies behave a lot like people. They are subject to a lot of the same influences that people are. There's really a sociology to galaxy growth that I think is very important, and the analogies are pretty much one-to-one. -one. When you want to know how anybody got to be the way they are, you have to ask what happened to them. And fortunately with people, like with my sister, I have video of her in the past. I grew up with her. I know everything that happened to her from day to day to day. That's called a longitudinal data set. I know how my sister changed. I know when she got broken up with her boyfriend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have access to that information with any galaxy in the universe, basically. So instead, what you have to do is, so we miss the time dimension, but we have this age dimension. So instead, what you do is you try to mix the two. You say, all right, here are a bunch of galaxies that are 10 billion years old. Let me look at a bunch of, let me look, look at my slice that's 9 billion, 8 billion, 7 billion, right? Different slices containing different galaxies at different times and say, which one of these is the analogy of the galaxy I saw here. Which one of these is the galaxy that looks the most like my sister did when she was a baby, when she was one? And to string those together using information like color, you principally tie them together using information like their color or like their mass, their heft, to try to piece together what is the actual time trajectory, put, fill in that missing dimension to expand that out and then gain access to physics. But it's actually unclear we can do that. This is the cutting edge of, of, my, of my research. When you say that a galaxy is very much like a person and has a sociology to it, and the galaxies have sociology, there's a huge amount of cultural assumption there that is, is fascinating to know that that's at play. Like those kinds of imaginations are structuring um, what a lot of people might think of as being a very hard science. One of the hardest things is the fact that the galaxies don't die. They just turn off. Those red galaxies don't go anywhere. They sit there being red. And one of the things we know is that as you go from the Big Bang to today, there's in each time slice, there's more and more red galaxies. There's more and more evidence. So the galaxies, the fossil evidence of the galaxies just builds. So today is the end point of this. We have a huge graveyard of everything that's ever died just hanging out as red galaxies, plus whatever is new and blue sitting around. Basically, you, you could frame the entire question of my research is dissecting that graveyard and figuring out when those things left the healthy star-forming population, and how did it happen differently to different galaxies? There's a really, at least in, in architecture, uh, well-known writing by Walter Benjamin, the, where he talks about the angel of history having to kind of face backwards so that the, 
the idea is that there's this angel who is being blown forward by time, but his face is turned backward. So all he sees as he watches is getting blown forward in time is the piled up catastrophe and wreckage of a present he can't see. He can only see what's already happened. And it's this really evocative image of actually how all of us have to deal with time. Even those of us whose dimensionality is limited to you know, this table, this space, this room, this clock time, et cetera. I want to know if you having to think about time in this way and having to think about space in this way and having to think about the sociology of uh, planets and galaxies and star forming events in this way has changed the way you think about your own life. One of the great virtues of being an astronomer is getting very, very comfortable very, very quickly with ambiguity. For those of us who are interested in galaxy evolution, you know, we're trying to fill in the information we want. You just learn very quickly that there's a whole lot of slop in this, that it's very, very difficult to say anything with certainty. Scientists do not seek truth at all. We are much more like artists and lawyers in, a, in combination. We are trying to use our intuition and our skills to paint a description of reality, and we're trying to argue that that vision is meaningful for enlightening the species. That's the lawyerly part. I don't think most people see a chemical symbol and decide to become a scientist. But I do think that when people see pictures of nebulae, pictures of galaxies, pictures of supernovae, the in, intrinsic beauty in the data sets, the intrinsic beauty in recognizing the dimensionality and all those other axes is so apparent immediately on the page that the richness of this, I think, is intrinsically compelling to us. Astronomy is serving to make the endeavor of bringing understanding to the human race something which the entire human race can participate in. And I, I'm, I'm proud of us for, for taking the lead in that. And I, I, hope, I hope it continues because then that's how things get better. You can follow Louis Abramson on Twitter at L-A-B underscore R-A-M-S. Coming up in Act 2, I wanted to speak to SciArc senior faculty member Devin Weiser, who is a partner in Testa Weiser and also the coordinator of the Visual Studies program. Both Devin and her partner, Peter, have taken what I like to think of as a hardcore ideological stance when it comes to architecture, carefully thinking through how its conventions and modes of representation form their own network of dimensions and dimensional possibilities. I wanted to talk to Devin today in particular about how her work seems to involve making fresh, creative use of architectural conventions, particularly dimensional conventions. What is seen as one-dimensional, like a line, two-dimensional, like the orthographic sequence of plan, section, and elevation, three-dimensional, etc., and what these graphic idioms are said to represent. Devin, how does your work change the way we think about one-dimension versus two-dimension versus three-dimension in architectural representations? We try to calibrate our work to play with convention while not necessarily privileging legibility. So a lot of our recent work relies on your ability to recognize that architectural conventions are relevant to the project without requiring that you have a specific knowledge base in order to read it. In a recent project called Non-Standard Graphics, we set aside scalar and symbolic conventions and let the line become recognizable 
as any number of known architectural elements. So depending on the graphic itself, it could be a wall, a column, a corridor, a room, and in essence, homogeneous and heterogeneous models of space are both present in the graphic representation at once. We could think about homogeneous space as a kind of universal space. Maybe you think about it as a grid, something that's infinite, that continues on, that doesn't have boundaries or borders or edges. And in a kind of opposite way, we could think about heterogeneous space as something that's more formed by rooms or closed spaces that have boundaries. What we're working on in the non-standard graphics project, for example, is that both of those models of space could be present at the same time. And if you think about just taking a sheet of paper and printing a basalt-like pattern, a brick-like pattern, um, a various thickness of lines on both sides of the paper, but not the same pattern, and then you fold that paper into a series of models, or we could ultimately think of as projects, that depending on how you look at the black and the white, what is solid or void can then ultimately be read out three-dimensionally in many different ways. So you might read a square as a solid column, or you might read it as an outline that becomes a room. And so in this way, the checkerboard or the game board has the potential to play many different kinds of models of space at once. And this is something that is, I think, much more of a contemporary way of thinking about space and that it has more to do with embedding multiple kinds of readings in one thing. So a kind of all at once, depending on how you would like to read it out or play the game, it can be many different things. Well, it's interesting because architecture has, has uh, since the Renaissance, been about simplifying three and even four dimensional space into a set of one and two dimensional representations. That's the way you represent it. That's the way you describe to a builder what you want to get built. That's the way that you communicate with other architects. And even in many cases, that's the way you design. And so the idea then that those simplifications or those traditions that have become conventions over time could then get misread on purpose to produce all kinds of unexpected possible designs means that the conventions are being remotivated somehow. They're being enlivened somehow. And actually dimensions, which are typically seen as limits, mm. are now being remobilized or repurposed to be ways to expand what architecture could do or what a set of drawing conventions might accomplish. That's exactly the point of why we're working on this project. I think it both challenges what we historically have thought of as architectural conventions, and it opens up a possibility for new readings that may not just be for architects, but may actually be more accessible to a larger audience. So there's maybe two really fundamental things that are happening in this project that are not only about the design, but one, it has a possibly a kind of political dimension, meaning making architecture more accessible, legible to a larger audience. And I don't think that that necessarily takes away from expertise, but like many of the new interfaces 
we have on our iPhones are much more graphic and they are more easily used by a range of people, children, adults, and that they are less challenging to understand. So that when you have something that is more legible, more people can enter that conversation. What new dimensions for architecture emerge from rethinking the relationship between flat screen interface, which is how we design today, Mm -hmm. and 4D robot interface, which is an area you have a lot of expertise in? So the relationship between the flattest screen we've ever had, the flat interface, and perhaps what we can call the robotic interface or a kind of robotic apparatus like the robot house at SciArc is a really fantastic way to think about how new types of design possibilities can emerge from moving back and forth between the digital and the analog space. So one of the kind of favorite images I enjoy is when you see in Robot House a photograph that contains the image of the computer screen. It contains the motion control interface for the robots. It has the scene that's being captured by cameras mounted on robots. It has the designers working in Robot House, their hands and the robot arms, all together in one picture. And I think it's that is no longer flat and that is no longer one-dimensional. It's multi-dimensional and it's a little bit as if the students or the designers in Robot House stepped behind that screen and were now in the 3D motion space. So it's sort of like the modern version of Alice through the looking glass. Exactly, and, um, and she's not alone. <laughs> well, I like that a lot because, you know, we all know that architecture is the product of many hands. And I love the idea that with this new dimension of the machine, we simply increase the amount of agency available to produce new things. I think that's a really great point in that the agency to produce new things is not necessarily because there's a singular new apparatus. It may actually take place in the gaps between those different, we could call them working spaces or techniques. And it's in those gaps that some of the unexpected and unplanned excitement happens in any project. And we've seen that now over the past 10 years in the robot house, that it isn't just what the robotic interface is doing, nor is it just a kind of cloning or counterpart to the digital. It's actually, you have multiple kinds of working spaces happening together. Can we ever have one-dimensional architecture? I think we can have one-dimensional architecture. And if we think about Duchamp, he already has suggested as much. He says that we can have a one-dimensional object and that we would call it an idea. I think that's true, but let's keep in mind that dimensions are a construct. That means as a construct, it's open to reinterpretation and that it's not necessarily an absolute. And with that in mind, then you can start to reimagine what conventions are because conventions are constructed and the dimensions of architecture therefore can be reinterpreted through a graphic project, through a tectonic project, through a material project. 
You can learn more about Devin's work with Peter Testa at www.testawiser.com. Act 3. Andy Campbell is the author of Queer by Design, the first illustrated history of iconic designs, symbols, and graphic art representing more than five decades of LGBTQ pride and activism. I'm here today with Andy Campbell, who is Assistant Professor of Critical Studies at USC's Roski School of Art and Design. You've done both a very critically acclaimed anthology, Queer by Design, which has received a huge amount of, uh, feels like very merited (laughs) attention. And then also I'm holding in my hands here your brand new book, Bound Together, Leather, Sex, Archives and Contemporary Art. What an awesome title. Maybe use both of these pieces of scholarship Mm. to address issues of dimensionality Mm -hmm. as they relate to uh, gender identity, to queer politics, and to aesthetic. One of the ways in which identities become productive vectors for design or for art is is thinking through the problems that identity kind of gives us, right? Because identity is not just one flat kind of terrain, right? It's it's variable. It has lots of dimensions as we're talking about dimensionality. The promise of queerness has always been to make the stable unstable, right? So if we take queerness seriously at its word, that it plays with gender and sexuality, that it um, upends easy notions of how identity is connected to our lives. Like, how do we make things that are connected to ourselves and our identities while also challenging some of the very assumptions that kind of come with that, right? So, for example, in the Queer by Design book, one of the first things I talk about is this protest poster that was made by this woman named Jeannie Menford who uh, walked in the Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade in New York in 1972 with her son Morty. And she created a sign that said, parents of gays unite and support your children or something to that effect. Jeannie Manford was a school teacher. She wasn't trained as a designer. She wasn't trained as an artist. She was just a mother who was invested in her son and her son's well-being and decided to put pen to poster board and create this kind of message that would go out into the public. What I find so remarkable about it is like not only is the poster that she created kind of very beautiful and like has this design intelligence that's really kind of great, which is that um, certain words are emphasized over other words. So if you're catching the poster really quickly, you just kind of catch the main kind of message of the poster. But it basically instigates the founding of PFLAG, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, which is one of the largest and longest running ally groups in the United States' history. So... It comes from a piece of what I would say is design. Maybe we call it barefoot design, but it's a piece of design that nonetheless instigated a slice of our movement. And that, to me, is kind of one of the ways in which identity and design kind of intersect, and also one of the ways that we can undermine a sense that there is one path to design or one path to art, right? Could you define queerness? I think that's not for me to define. Actually, what's kind of interesting about that is that every time that somebody tries to pin down what queerness is or can be, someone else comes from the sides, from up the ranks, and says, no, that's not what queerness is or can be, right? So I think instead I think about queerness as a process of becoming rather than an answer of what is. Right. If we keep in mind that queerness is always about becoming, is always about learning and relearning ourselves and, and re-identifying and re-inscribing ourselves, 
then I think you can't meaningfully capture what it means in one sentence or two sentences. One idea about queerness that gets cited a lot, at least in my field, in academia, in art history, and in visual studies, in performance studies, is Jose Esteban Munoz's formation in Cruising Utopia, which is queerness is always on the horizon. You know, it's always something that is yet to come. And I think that's really informed a whole generation of scholars. Knowing that queerness is not a simple, Mm -hmm. defined, static category into which some people or objects fit and others don't, how then do you usefully define queer aesthetics? How do you choose the material that right. becomes iconic? So given the trickiness of defining queerness, how does one come up with a list or at least an idea of what might be encompassed by a queer aesthetic? I mean, I think you have to look at a variety of source material and in a variety of places to really arrive at something like an answer for that. So. For example, in the Queer by Design book, um, I was not only relying on a history of my own research in archives of encountering things that I thought were interesting but didn't have a place to kind of put them in my work at that moment. So I created like a miscellaneous folder on my desktop that lived on my desktop for years and that became a kind of spine for the book. So it in part comes from archives, but it also comes from talking to people and talking to folks to whom queerness and queer symbols and ideas matter. So one of the problems with doing research on queer subjects, and it's true of many minoritarian communities, is that because of their relationship to power and structures of power, oftentimes their histories do not get captured in official ways. That means going into people's garages and people's attics and talking to them and like actually having um, conversations with them. It's something that art historians have been, and I'm trained as an art historian, have been really bad at historically, right? Because we're told that implicitly or explicitly that the only artist worth studying is art that is made by artists who are now dead or something. How as an art historian or someone trained in art history, and I'm thinking also about the archival work that went into a book like this, how do you think the queer process or the queer becoming is opening new doors for scholarship in general. To really think through the idea that queerness provides a method for approach, one of the things that I did in Bound Together was I built a chapter around how one might access an archive and read an archive out in order to suggest the kind of work that might be done out of archives. So the chapter is dedicated to the color yellow, and it is... Um, based on the archive, the Leather Archives and Museum in Chicago. And it was early in my dissertation research that I went up there to do some primary source research. And I struck a deal with the archives. And I said, look, I'll dedicate my mornings to whatever you need from me. Like, I'll give you my labor in the morning. So put me on filing, put me on you know, tagging, put me on data entry, whatever it is that you feel like I can reasonably do, I'm happy to do it. And then in the afternoon, I'll pursue my own project. So what that meant was that I got insight into all the things that were coming into the archive and how the archive worked. And what started to emerge for me are certain lines of interest or lines of questions that I had for the archive. So one of the things that exists in the archive are examples of the Henke Code. It was a code that existed on the body where you could signify certain sexual interests by by flagging certain colors of Henke on your right or left back pocket. The color yellow in the Henke Code is always reserved for um, piss play or for kind of 
the erotic act of urination, essentially. And the more I started to see yellow objects in the archive, the more I saw that they corresponded to some of the meanings that were buried with it, you know, meanings from the hanky code. So what that suggested to me was like, you could actually look at the archive with a particular color in mind and you would get this kind of slice of what the archive contained, but also a sense of the various meanings that are attached to yellow by those communities. Just by paying attention to one color from a system of classification and codification that is native to this community, essentially. A whole line through the body opens up. Well, right? and, and it does open up a, a new dimension. I mean, just thinking yeah. about the dimensionality that we started out with, um, being able to look at color codes in that transverse section is a completely different way of reading the material available. The idea that we can read archives differently comes right out of this idea discussed both by Michel Foucault and by the people that try to describe his work, which is that he would go into national or state archives and essentially read them on the diagonal. He would not read for the categories as they existed, but he would actually kind of read transversely. And I think that that's a really key insight and can really drive forward scholarship both about art, design, and marginalized communities of various sorts. I think this is the, one of the most transformative dimensions of queer aesthetics and queer studies, and critical studies in general, actually, as a larger scholarly category, that it challenges more staid fields. Fields that might think of themselves as being stable and easily defined somehow become less so because of this activity happening around them and through them and diagonally across them. Right. The impact of queer focused study on other fields of study is often attuned to kind of queering that mode of study. So we say, you know, I'm queering the history of architecture or I'm queering, you know, romantic literature studies or whatever it is. And I think that's a way of providing a kind of new dimension or a new way of seeing that thing. It also means that people who engage in this work often find have trouble finding a place in certain kinds of fields, looking from being legitimate in the eyes of the people whose fields they're kind of engaging in. And that's that's a problem that I don't know how to solve yet. You know, that's a problem that that I hope the presence of more queer people in academia or in whatever field helps to solve. It's not just about the visuality of representation in those places, which is absolutely important. It's also about a base level of understanding about the ways that we attack and think about kind of knowledge and knowledge production. I think one of the things that you're raising on a really profound basic level is the connection between epistemology and ontology. In, in forging that connection between saying, you know what, this is a way of being in the world that produces new ways of knowing in the world. And being forthright about the connection between the one and the other is, I think, a defining new dimension for scholarship in our time. It is one of the ways that we are moving forward thought in our own time is by understanding how deeply ontological it actually is. Those changes to the way that we think about epistemology and ontology or the way that we are and the way that we know, I think are greatly indebted too to feminism, to critical race theory, to post-colonial studies. You know, those fields, they're coterminous with queer studies in some in some ways, but they they really kind of paved a way for rethinking some of these kind of massive categories. I don't just identify myself as a queer person, but as someone who's identified with and dedicated to feminism or someone who's identified and dedicated to anti-racist work or someone who's identified and dedicated to anti-colonialist work as much as I can. And I'm still working through how 
that might run through my um, work more generally. I think those are major challenges to fields of knowledge and those challenges that feminism brings up, that critical race theory brings up, that post-colonial theory brings up are ones that we're still grappling with today. And again, just to remind folks of the human dimension, it's not just kind of abstract, but people's careers and lives were stunted and shortened and ruined by systems that could not understand what they were after. And I'm always trying to be mindful of the ways in which we kind of stand on, on the shoulders of those giants, you know? So, so yeah, I think if we're talking about dimensionality, queerness should be seen as a kind of interlocking project with these other projects that existed prior to its emergence within academia, but certainly alongside it in some really kind of interesting ways. Andy Campbell's new book, Bound Together, Leather, Sex, Archives, and Contemporary Art, is out now with the University of Chicago Press. The ARC was produced by Shelley Holcomb and the Southern California Institute of Architecture. Story editing by Kathy Huey at Our Story Productions. Music by James Thomas Marsh. I'm Marika Trotter. More stories next month here at the ARC.